in preparation for the message this morning, uh, and then we will uh, dive into our, our topic for the week. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us today. I pray that you would um, just be in our presence, be in our midst. Um, as I unpack the word, as I share uh, the gospel today, I pray that you would be uh, in me, that you would speak through me, that you would uh, just um, fill my words, uh, uh, fill my heart, fill my mind. And, and Lord God, if I get in the way, uh, step over me and, and uh, deliver the good news of Christ to the, the folks who are here today. I pray, Lord God, also that you would be uh, with the people who are here. Uh, touch their hearts, touch their souls, touch their minds. Be in them and through them. Help us to come into a place where we worship with, with everything that we are. Uh, Lord God, with our minds during the message that we would hear from you, that we would know you. If we have sin or, or areas of struggle, please shine a light on it. Um, if we have areas of growth or if we're inspired or, or your spirit fills us, I pray that you would pour gas on that fire and turn it into a, a great blaze for you. Um, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I will admit, uh, when I went downstairs uh, to get the outlines, I, I finished them early, actually, and I thought, well, I'll just print them Sunday morning. I'll have plenty of time, and then I didn't. And so I had to print them during the songs because I, uh, I, I straight up forgot. Uh, so uh, when I went out, though, I passed by uh, Victoria and I gave her a hug because it's so wonderful to see Victoria, who is leaving early because I'm talking about her. Uh, <laughs> but she said to me, oh, I'm here. Uh, I said, well, I, I knew you were going to be here because your dad told me. And uh, she said, well, does that mean I'm going to be in the sermon? And I was like, I don't plan any of that ahead of time. It's whatever comes out of my mouth when I get up there is what I say. And uh, so I, I opted to give her a little grief about being late, even though she wasn't, uh, which is a recurring beer wagon teasing point is the late factor. Uh, and I've been here long enough that I've been able to make that joke for daylight savings time on many occasions. Uh, although I, Dwayne was not late for daylight savings time, and I assume that is, that is uh, his wife's doing. Uh, and so, I, I, uh, you have done the impossible. You are amazing. Uh, but there's a power to that, okay? I, I, as I get into this, there's a power to labels, and there's a power to how we identify ourselves in that it shapes who we are and what we are. If you convince somebody that they're lazy, guess what they'll be? Lazy. If you convince somebody that they're forgetful, they will be forgetful, right? Um, in, in uh, golly, I had a great, oh, no, I was reading about, um, about praise in children and how important it is to praise children, but not just that, how, to, how important it is to praise them um, in ways that make them productive because they take something into our, their identity. And like what this is, is if you tell a child that he or she is smart and you tell them enough, they will come to, to believe that they are smart. However, that particular point of praise tends to be detrimental over the long term because kids who are smart figure out that they are smart enough to not work. Or if they struggle, it either pops the bubble of who they think they are or they become frustrated because they say, well, I'm smart. I should be able to do this. Um, there is more power in praising a child for working hard 
than there is in telling them that they're smart. Isn't that weird? Because hard work equals more in the long run than being intelligent. It's weird. And it's weird, like, I, I don't think I'm dumb. I think I'm a kind of clever guy. But it's weird how badly I did in school until I learned how to work hard, which was in grad school. Like, <laughs> way, way down the line. Like, like, but I always assumed, well, I'm smart. I can do this. You know, I, I'm, I'm smart, and this is beneath me, so I'm not going to. And I, I think it was actually in college when I started thinking that way very directly, but it was a build over time. I, I was convinced that I was smart. And in reality, uh, I was really dumb because I was lazy. Um, and so as we dive into our topic for today, I'm not doing verse by verse right now because of Easter. We're working our way through Lent, and we're going to talk about baptism today. Um, Lent is traditionally a period of time, like it's the 40 days preceding Easter, and throughout church history, it has been a time where people prepare themselves, where they train themselves to be in preparation for um, celebrating the, the, the sacrifice of Christ for our redemption and his resurrection and the new life and hope that we have in Christ. Like, this season is when people would train for that. They would prepare. They would put a whole lot of effort into becoming ready. Um, and, like, like it's a little like racing. You know, if I was going to run a race, I would go out and I would run regularly. Right? If I sat on the couch and told myself, I am fit, I will do well, and I need to, you know, carb load, so I'm going to eat all these chips, uh, it's not going to help me. Like, it's that training process. And so for the next, like, last week and for the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the training prop process in preparation for Easter, in preparation for encountering Christ in a huge way, um, and specifically about baptism. Uh, last week, we talked about this idea, um, which is going to be sort of the, the earmark for the whole series. This is the theme for our series. We talked about coming to a place where you hunger and thirst after Christ, the way that we hunger and thirst after food, the way we need air. Have you all ever been underwater and not been able to breathe? You know? Uh, thank you. Have you all ever been underwater and not been able to get out in order to breathe? There is this sort of panic that hits you because air is one of those things that we, like, straight up need. I mean, like, you've got minutes between, like, breath and death, Right? Like, there is not a whole lot of gap there. It is a pretty unforgiving reality about our lives. Um, I, and, and like, like, that need is what we're talking about. Because for a believer, for a follower of Jesus, like Christ himself, that intimacy and relationship we have with him is the food we eat. It is the water we drink. It is the air we breathe. It is everything that we are. And it is not an automatic thing. We have to train ourselves. We have to grow into a place where we learn to crave that all the time. Are you all with me? Um, I am going to jump in. Like our big idea, if you're going to hear nothing else, this is the point in time you just hear this part, you can fall asleep after this, but I would recommend you not because there's more to it than this. But new life in Christ, which is signified in baptism it results in living through Christ, and that new life is who we are, and we have to remember it and live by it. It becomes the label of who we are, right? 
you, you ask around Big Sandy and you will hear like, well, what are you? I am from Big Sandy, right? I am a farmer. I am a rancher. I was told in my first week on the job not to mix them up because some farmers and some ranchers become very offended by the mixed label. I'm not a farmer. I'm not a rancher. I work, you know, I, this, I, that, you know, and, and, but our labels begin to shape who we are. And like coming back to that label of I am in Christ shapes us. It gives us identity and it is the core of our identity. And like the baptism thing, it is a symbol. It is a, uh, a public declaration of what has happened in you. And we need to come back to it over and over again. And remember, I am new. Uh, so, we're going to look at some texts. Uh, like I said, usually I do verse by verse. This is a different way of preaching, and so I need a little bit of grace. I am not great at this version of it, and I did not bring my glasses upstairs with me. Please don't get them. Uh, do not, because that didn't work out well last time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What on earth is Paul talking about here? Well, Paul is talking about something called like typology. Typology is this really big word. It is uh, a very simple idea. It is the simple idea is that everything in the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament. And there are stories and events in the Old Testament. When you read them, if you read them and pay attention, you can say, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's me. Oh, that is the, the death for our sins, the redemption. You know, you look at the sacrificial system. All of that was about Good Friday and Easter. You look at uh, the story of Abraham and his son and the, God telling him to sacrifice him. That is all about um, God offering his son as a sacrifice for us. And there's about 30 different little details in that story, including the place where it happens. Because, like, God sends Abraham to where Christ is crucified. He has to travel three days to get there. Three days, what a weird coincidence. He has to travel three days to get there so that he can offer Isaac up on this, in the same place that um, Christ would eventually be offered up for us, where the Father would offer his son for our sins. And like, there's just all these things. And so the whole Old Testament is about Christ. The whole Bible is about Christ. And when we look at this Corinthians passage, what Paul is talking about, he's saying, listen, in the desert, when you see the people coming out of slavery, traveling through the Red Sea, and coming out alive on the other side, and the significance there, by the way, the Jewish people perceived, they looked at water and seas and rivers. That was like associated with chaos and death. And like, um, you know, when you, when you see like metaphors in the Psalms, oftentimes being like put beneath the waters is the equivalent of being buried in, you know, in the ground or being sent down to Sheol or whatever. Like there are these elements of death associated with this. And so like when they pass through the Red Sea and they come out alive on the other side and God is present before them in a great cloud, he's saying, listen, this is like baptism. This is us being washed. It's us being buried, or the Jewish people being washed 
in Christ and being buried dead and being resurrected and being confronted by the Spirit of God in front of them in this big cloud. And that is like it was baptism. And then they would eat manna in the desert. And Christ even says that himself. We looked at that last week. This, you know, manna was me. I am the bread from heaven. Pay attention, folks. Like, like the whole idea here that Paul is talking about is, listen, the Jewish people did the same thing. All of our lives were pointing forward, you know, all of history was pointing forward toward this redemption, this bear, you know, this old man who is dead in sin, buried and made alive in Christ. And it happens in the Old Testament, and it happens with us when we come into saving knowledge of who Christ is. Now, there's a very important component here. We are dead in our sins, um, except in movies, and maybe we'll see... You know, like like what the next round of the you know the the pandemic brings us, dead people don't walk around. We all agree on that. Like dead people have a, a significant habit of not moving. Um, they have a significant habit of not trying to accomplish things or breathe or think or act or choose to eat a meal or whatever. Dead is dead, um, and in Christ. Um, we're brought back to life, but it is God's deal. We are buried and brought back to life. And we're going to kind of dig into this idea. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. need to not do that. Um, Matthew 28, uh, jumping forward. So we have this idea, I kind of draw it out, like baptism, this burial and resurrection is the plan since the fall. It's built into the creation. It was always going to be how things worked. So in Matthew 28, we have... Uh, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Why did I include the Great Commission? Um, because there's some really cool bits of information in there that are easy to miss if you just look at it as a command. So Jesus says, make disciples. So what is a disciple? Well, first off, a disciple is marked by baptism, right? And like we, I don't think uh, the ancient church emphasized baptism at a whole level that I think it's easy to get away from now. And it's easy to step away from it, from it in terms of like, like what we are and who we are because being baptized doesn't carry the same weight today that it did then. To be baptized in the ancient world was to declare your allegiance with a movement that could very well mean the end of you. It could mean ostracizing. It could mean losing your business. If you were found guilty of having been baptized into the Christian faith, um, and a neighbor was able to demonstrate that that was true in a Roman court. They could take all of your property. The judge, that was the way it worked. Like if you found a neighbor who was a believer, you could accuse them and you could prove it. And then the law said you, that the property of that person would be default and awarded to the accuser. And there's actually a whole set of Roman law code about that. And so you would watch your neighbors carefully. And if you figured out like that neighbor, I think that guy's a Christian. You could take all his stuff, right? You could take his fields, you could take his house, you could take his, like, livestock. I mean, it's kind of a good deal. Like, it's much cheaper than hiring police. Um, though I think history has had examples of this happening. It's not a good example. Um, and so in the ancient world, to be baptized was not a small thing. 
It was a life commitment. It was a, I will die to my own way, old way. And why, like, why am I talking about this in relation to Lent? Because Lent is the time that we prepare ourselves in Christ. And the beginning of our preparation in Christ is being buried with him and being brought to new life. Um, and oftentimes, Easter was a time when people would be baptized, right? Like in the ancient world, you would baptize people on Easter all the time. And the beginning of the tradition of fasting through Lent was in the ancient church because people would fast for six weeks before being baptized. And they would fast for six weeks before baptizing someone to make sure that they were spiritually ready for that commitment. Think about that. I mean, in my world, if I miss two meals, the world's going to end. Right? I got snacks hidden everywhere I go. Um, And I can go and buy snacks anywhere. The idea of being hungry on purpose in our culture is anathema. It does not exist. It is not a thing that we tolerate or put up with. I need to be full and comfortable All the time. But the first mark of a believer that Christ lists off, the mark of a disciple is being baptized. Um, Publicly proclaiming, this is who I am. I've been buried to my old self and I'm alive in Christ. Um, So, like, this is what Jesus identifies. So it's from the beginning it was this way. Jesus identifies it as the mark of a disciple. And then we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at John. This is John talking to Nicodemus. Uh, And most of us know, like, the famous text associated with this, John 3. But the verse we would talk about for the famous one is 16, right? We're not going to go that far. We're going to go to 8. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's a part of the the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with them. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Say that again, born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, what is going on here? Um, Jesus uses the line, born again. And actually, born again has become um, a term of derision in popular culture. Right? Like, think about it a minute. Have you, how many of y'all have seen a TV show or a movie or whatever where they talk about, oh, that guy's a born again? And it's not a positive thing. It usually means that guy's nuts. And to some degree, it's 100% true. Right? Because the opposite of that, as far as Christians are concerned, would be a guy who is following Jesus but hasn't become a new person with a new identity. They're still standing in the world bearing that name tag, I am a Montanan. Or actually, I should say, I am a Texan, 
right? Because Texans are all about their identity. I am from Texas. Or in this part of the world, it would be, you're from California, as a derogatory label. I'm sorry if you're from California. I saw the face. I didn't mean to do that. Um, I, I'm kind of a jerk. I, um, see, I labeled myself. Uh, but he's saying, listen, you have to be this new person. You have to be born again, meaning the old you needs to cease to exist, must be buried, and then a new you must be born of the water, a new like life. The spirit... Like born of the water and the spirit, the flesh gives birth to flesh. When we become believers, we begin to fight with our own flesh. That dead part of us that tries to run the show, we push it away and we fight with it and we like try to kill it off um, and we try to resist sin and we try to overcome temptation. We try to put our pride away. We try to love people that are unlovable and that's no fun. Um, like that fight is forever with us. Instead, we have to be born of the Spirit. And the water component there is symbolic. It is pointing towards. Is there other stuff attached to it? Probably. I'm not trying to teach a theology of baptism today. Okay? So if you're trying to, like, there's one or two guys in the room who are always trying to figure out where I stand on something, I assume. And this is not that talk. Okay? This is me explaining that baptism is attached to new birth. It is attached to new life. In Christ's teaching, he says, listen, this is what it means to be a follower of me. Baptism. Right? And then, in this verse, what we see is, it's not just the baptism. The baptism is this new life. You must be brand spanking new. You must be a new person. Um, and you must live in that reality. Um, Baptism, so my first big idea, right? Oh my gosh, I'm like 20 minutes in. Uh, baptism is a central idea throughout the scriptures, right? It follows all the way through. It is integrally, integrally connected to our salvation, and it does not save us. Let me say that again. It does not save us. You are not saved because you are baptized. Everybody hear me? In the same way as saying that prayer... You know the one I'm talking about? Like, I actually said it when I became a Christian, like when I committed my life to following Jesus. Like, I I said that prayer, but that was not the moment I was born again. That prayer was just a guide. The prayer itself doesn't save anyone. The baptism itself doesn't save anyone. These are like reflections of an inward reality. We are baptized because we belong to Christ. It is something we are commanded to do. Make a public statement that old Eric is dead and new Eric is here. Make it a part of you, your identity, who you are. Once upon a time, it was a dangerous thing to do. Now it's a thing we do or don't do whether we feel like it or not. But in reality, it's something we're commanded to do. It's a mark of a follower of Christ. It is part of who we are. So, I'm going to jump on. So, that's my first big point, right? So, Colossians. Um, some of these should go faster. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spirit forces of the world rather than on Christ. Now, this is a sort of precursor to the rest of the verse. Why am I including this? Well, because a lot of times we can get sideways in our minds. Are you all with me? Anybody ever have a swear jar so that you could stop swearing so you could be a better follower of Jesus? Really? <laughs> oh, it's just me. Um, 
No, I never actually had a jar. Uh, but like a lot of times we think, well, I need to be, I need to try harder to be a follower of Jesus, right? I need to try harder to take this sin out of my life. I need to try harder to put this away. I need to try harder to stop looking at things on the internet I shouldn't, or I need to start, try harder to not yell at my kids, or I need to try harder to not sleep late on Sundays and show up late to church. But she's not even back in here yet, so I can't even give her grief. Um, and oftentimes we get taken captive by that philosophy, by that false truth that is hollow. In reality, for in Christ, all fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, meaning that Christ was fully God and fully man. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. What does that mean? It means we have been brought to life in Christ and we are in relationship with God. We are become, like we have become what we were meant to be. We have become um, new creations. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What is Paul talking about? Well, first off, he's got a group of people who are fighting back and forth over whether or not you have to be circumcised to be saved. Because there was a group of people who taught, you got to become a Jewish person in order to become a Christian. And Paul was saying, listen, that's not how it works. Circumcision does not save you. It was an outward symbol of being cut off from the rest of the world. Do whatever you want with that. Um, but that's what it was. And it was a daily reminder, right? Because it's not like you're going to forget. Um, that, that, look, I am different from everyone else. In, in the core of who I am, I am different. I'm cut off from the world. Baptism is the same. And it's something that is recurring in um, God's covenant with the world. Whenever you see God make a covenant with the world, there's always a visual sign of it, right? And so with Moses, or with Noah, God makes a covenant with the people. What's the covenant? The, the rainbow, like whenever we see one, it's a reminder that he's not going to drown us all, right? That, you know, the, the first solution, how do you get rid of sin in the world? Well, you kill all the bad people. And as it turns out, like everyone's bad because Noah wasn't any good either and his sons were horrible and it just kind of goes all from there. Like we're all like bad. And so that solution is demonstrated to be false. After that, we see Abraham. Abraham is given a sign of the covenant. The agreement between God and Abraham was signified by circumcision, right? And in Moses, you got all these laws and you've got like ceremonies and sacrifices and the Passover meal and this and that. I mean, like all of these outward symbols, they would wear tassels on their clothes and those tassels would be a reminder of something or don't wear cloth of mixed fibers. Why would I have to wear only wool or cotton or linen or whatever? I don't think cotton was a thing then, was it? It was not. Um, why would you wear one clothing, like, like one material clothing? Well, it was because then you could look at your clothes and you could be reminded like, oh, I'm Jewish. I am Jewish alone. I cannot be Jewish and Canaanite. I cannot be Jewish and, you know, a follower of Baal. I only belong to God. I am only Jewish. This is my symbol. And the whole of that covenant is full of these outward signs. Um, for us as followers of Christ, there are um, several outward signs, and one of them is baptism. It is being washed, buried, and brought to life. And Paul kind of says, listen, it's not in the flesh, it's in the spirit. 
And so we recognize in our baptism that we are buried and brought to new life. Old Eric is dead. New Eric is here. And so we are raised to new life. Uh, what then shall, or what shall we say then? Shall I go on sinning so that grace may increase? And I have done this, by the way. I could recite this verse. I could have recited this verse for years. But I would routinely, I had sins that I had gotten stuck in, um, like when I was drinking heavily and all that. Like I, I was stuck in these sins, and I would say, well, Christ forgives me. I just need to repent. And I just go right back to my sin, right? Because I identified myself as receiving this grace, and so it didn't matter. But that's a false understanding of what it is. That is a false teaching regarding how grace works, how new life in Christ works. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so, like the big idea here is in Christ. So we talked about like, hey, public proclamation, uh, part of the design, part of the symbol of dead and brought to new life. And then here, it is our identity now. This is who I am. This is what I am. Old Eric is dead and buried. I am new in Christ. And so when I face temptation, when I face the desire to be lazy or to be hateful or to be angry, I, I come back to this. Sometimes I'll get really mad at, like, my wife. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I get mad at her uh, before I figure out I was wrong. Um, it's true. And I'll dig into that anger and, oh, how dare she or doesn't she know? And, and it's always, always all about me. And eventually, like every time, the breaking point is I have to love my wife like Christ loved the church. I'm dead to the old Eric that hates things and that is angry and bitter and pours gas on the fire of my own resentment. I'm dead to that guy. New life, Eric, has to be different. In Christ, I can't be that person. This is what discipleship is supposed to remind us of. It's what fellowship with other believers exists for. Because we gather up with other believers and we spend time and we look at them and we're like, I want to be like that guy. There are people in this room that you think, I want to be like that guy? I mean, or that gal or whatever. I want to be more like them because I want to be more like Christ. That's why fellowship is a thing. That is why um, we're surrounded by other believers who are an inspiration, a cloud of witnesses. Um, that is why That is why we're called to be in discipleship relationships, honestly. So we can be reminded of our baptism. So we can be reminded of our death to old Eric and new life in Christ. It's both, uh, hold on, did I cover that? Yeah, I did. Um, let's move on, all right? So we have, this is our new identity. And this is a part of the plan from the beginning. It's a part of the design. It's a feature, not a bug. Uh, Romans 6, 1 to 7. Uh, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a re- resurrection like him, like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, 
so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who died has been set free from sin. What does that mean? It means if I am a slave and I die, then I am no longer a slave. Got it? The surest way out of any contract is to just straight up die, right? Want out of your mortgage? Dying will do that. I am not encouraging that as a path for paying off your debt at all. But what Paul is saying here is, listen, in the sense of eternity, I am a slave to my sin. But when I die to that sin and I'm born anew in Christ as a new creation, because Christ carried the weight of my sin and provided a way for new life for me, um, I'm free. Now, what's funny about this is that in Romans 7, he says, listen, I know that I'm free from slavery to my sin, but my sin still grabs the wheel and steers the car in a different direction, right? It's weird when I lived in a big city and there were all kinds of restaurants and donut places and everything else, there was a Krispy Kreme. And during times when I was trying to lose weight, it was weird how apart, like there was a secret entity, invisible and ghost-like in my car that would see the big red light that says hot and now in Krispy Kreme's window and we would turn in. And I don't even know what would happen. Um, somebody else would grab the wheel, and that's how it is with sin. It grabs the wheel and says, we're going to go this way and sin. Let's have fun. Um, and we fight against that part of ourselves. We crucify it daily. Um, Galatians 5, uh, 16 or 20, there's a bit, bit of verse here. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And I warn you, as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, it's oftentimes easy to read this list as a lens through which to see our neighbors. If you did that while I was reading it, you did it wrong. This is a mirror. It's a mirror that we read and we say, am I indulging in impurity? Am I turning things into idols? Am I hating my neighbor? Am I sowing discord and gossiping? Am I jealous of people? Do I have fits of rage and temper tantrums? Am I selfish? Do I create factions wherever I go? It's a mirror. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So what do we do with that? i got a farming metaphor. You put a seed in the ground and you walk away or drive away. I assume most of you drive away. Uh, that seed comes to life. It's weird, isn't it? It breaks open and parts of it start going down and parts of it go up. And it goes from being this funny looking little seed to being corn 
like a big plant with leaves and like solar panels and, and like a super highway to drag nutrients up and down and everything else like to chase off like bugs and to protect moisture when it gets too hot and dry and everything else. Like it is amazing. You bury this thing and it comes up in new life. And the fruit of that is the kernels of grain or tomatoes or strawberries or cucumbers or whatever. Like, like these things come out of it and it is amazing. It is amazing what God does. Um, or you get cheat grass. That's a thing, right? Wild oats, right? I don't know. What, there are other weeds, right? It's not just those two. Um, those are the only two in my yard. It's dandelions, which actually, if I would just start eating dandelions, which I think you can eat, then I could call it a crop and not bad like yard work. Um, <laughs> I'm a farmer. Um, I don't, I didn't hear what he said and I'm good with that. Uh, I am allergic to dandelions, which is why I don't eat them. Um, what's, what's the point of that? Listen, if we are in Christ, if we are newly alive, we've been buried dead and something new comes out of us, the fruit will determine what it is. I assume wild oats are some kind of oats. I assume that wheat produces wheat, Right. What you plant and what grows off of you is what you are. And so as we are in Christ, as we die to our old selves, um, buried, new things should grow out of us. Um, and part of that deal is crucifying ourselves daily. It means when we encounter spots where our flesh is calling us to do one thing or another, um, when we're called to, when we feel called to gossip, anybody ever, you hear something, you just can't wait to share it? There's sort of bubbles up in you, and you're like, oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you what Daniel's doing. He's not doing anything. Uh, he's paying attention, actually, which is awesome, I assume. Um, these things are new life in us. And when I have this desire to gossip, when I have this desire to create division, when I have this desire to attack my neighbor or to start fighting in my church because I want things to go my way, I have to crucify that. I have to bury it the same way as I was buried at my baptism. This is part of old Eric, get in the grave. You don't take it with you. Like I've been to a lot of funerals. I have never once watched someone bury someone and then pull the casket back out of the ground and take it home. Right? Not a once. Old you has died if you're in Christ. Leave it. And sometimes that means waking up in the morning and saying, I was baptized, I was washed, I was born again. This is who I am. I'm not that guy. And so my last like big idea from our text today is that in Christ, we die to our old selves and are resurrected to new life. The new life we live is an already but not yet thing. That's a Paulism. He'll say we are already like in the presence of God and alive in Christ and everything else, but we're really not yet there. I am already victorious of over sin because it's true in eternity, but not yet. I, you know, when I, I, I assume that some people, my brother runs marathons, and I assume when he runs a marathon, he's going to finish. And so he's finished, he just hasn't gotten to the finish line yet. Got it? Unless he falls dead or something, which won't happen. Um, this means we put ourselves like we wrestle with ourselves daily. We fight with ourselves daily, knowing that the ultimate 
resolution is this, but that we have to do the work. It is not trying hard to not swear. It is trying hard to be in Christ a different person who is not the kind of person who speaks crassly or who gossips or abuses other people or hates his neighbor or, you know, like, like blows up at the drop of a hat or whatever. Like it is becoming that person and recognizing this is who I am. I'm in Christ, but I have to work to become that. I have to strive to become that. And that label, that recognition, this is what I am, needs to be at the forefront of every day. Needs to be reminded, I'm alive in Christ, old Eric is dead. All right, so salvation, uh, hold on, uh, important concept. So here's the stuff behind the ideas out of the text, right? Salvation is just the beginning of our new life. When you have a child, I assume like Victoria has had a child somewhat recently, that child got home and one of the very first things it did was demand things, Right? Yes, and they let you know, and they let you know at inconvenient moments. Room service, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm quite hungry. Where is room service, right? But if the baby doesn't do that kind of thing, there's a problem, right? The baby doesn't eat, there's a problem. The baby doesn't let you know that there's something going on, there's a problem, um, it is just the beginning to be born anew. All of the cool stuff happens after that. And the further along you get, the cooler it gets. And so it is with being in Christ. As we grow and mature and bear fruit in keeping with salvation, like awesome stuff happens. But sometimes you got to work for it. Did anybody go through growing pains? Oh, when your knees hurt and your legs hurt and your chest hurts and everything else. Growing pains is awful. I really feel bad for girls because you guys are clinically insane for about six, seven years in there, right? No, I'm not kidding. Like, did you, did you have the weird hormonal period where, like, everything was just a huge reaction and you cried at the drop of a hat and you were angry at everyone? <laughs> the, <laughs> thank you. Uh, you just hit the record player and it skips over the scratch. Uh, the truth is, that growth in Christ isn't easy, but it's not work. It happens naturally. And it happens naturally as we develop and deepen our relationship with Christ. It is new life. That growth is new life. I did not love my neighbor right away. In fact, there were people I flat out hated. And I hated for 10 years before I figured out how to love them. It was an area where I had to grow and those roots of Christ and the Holy Spirit had to dig in and break apart. And it wasn't easy. And it's easy to, like, believe. My second big point here under concepts, i got to work hard to do this. It's not that. I have dogs. My dogs don't have to work hard to be dogs. They're just dogs, right? You leave your dinner on the table and walk away, guess what's going to happen? They're going to eat it. That's what dogs do. You know, you leave toys out. The dogs are going to chew it. The puppy's going to chew it up. Why? It's a puppy. That's what puppies do. They don't have to work at that. They just do it. Babies don't have to work at crying when they're hungry. They just do it. We as followers of Christ don't need to work hard to be like Christ. We need to work hard to walk with Christ and to know him. And because we, be, we are new life, we are newly created and we're crucifying our flesh, that just comes about. But that is work. 
That work doesn't save you. It doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you better than anybody else. It makes it so that you're getting out of the way and the Holy Spirit is doing the heavy lifting of sanctifying you. Last two important concepts here. Baptism is a symbol of both our washing and our death and resurrection. And you have to remember those things every day in order to grow to hunger and thirst after Christ. If you want to really hunger after being in relationship with Christ, after being intimate and close with Christ, you have to keep that stuff at the forefront. You have to know who you are, and you have to come back to it over and over again and remind yourself, this is who I am. I was reading about um, Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was a teenager. He decided, I am going to be a bodybuilder. And he found pictures of bodybuilders, which if... You know, normally a teenager does this, it's a little creepy. But he cut out pictures of bodybuilders. He said, I'm going to look like this guy. And he hung them up on his wall, and he would sit and stare at them every day. Every day. And he said, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy. That's what I'm going to look like. And we as believers need to come back to Christ every day and look at him and say, that's what I'm going to look like. We need to find heroes of the faith and look at them every day and say, I'm going to be that guy. It kills me that Brooke and Renee moved away because Brooke was one of those guys that every time I saw him, I would watch him and say, that's the kind of Christian I want to be with hair. That's the kind of man I want to be. There are a lot of believers in my life that I encounter that I look at them and say, I want to be like that guy. And by staring at them and saying, this is who I am, this is who I'm going to be, we forge a new identity. And this is a part of Lent. We have to come back to this over and over again and remember, I died. I was brought new. And then we look at Christ and we say what he did for me, who he is, who he created me to be. That's what I want. All spiritual daily discipline, all discipline, all pursuit of Christ is that. It is putting our old self to death in favor of a new you, a new creation in favor of becoming Christ's life. So how do we apply this? Because a lot of information, I know, and, you know, it's just a lot to do with. But, like, to me, baptism has often been separated from the reality of my life in Christ, and that's not true. And whenever it gets less true, I struggle more because I forget I'm dead. I am a new man. So we must be clear that we are new creations. We have to intellectually understand and establish this truth. We have to commit ourselves to following Christ and to being a new creation. It needs to be a public thing that we say so folks are able to hear the fact that this is who I am. One of the things I've discovered is if I want to accomplish something in life, I have to tell everybody about it first, and then I have to tell them about my progress. And so I wrote a book. I said, I'm going to write a book. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you all about it as I go so that there are people who know this is the guy who wrote a book, but he hasn't finished it yet. I did it. Um, When you go to AA, these are people who get up and they say, I'm overcoming this. I am one of you. I will be sober today, and, you know, tomorrow God will help me to get through that. They take on a new identity, and they surround themselves with a new community, and that becomes everything. So our baptism is a reminder of that, the same way that communion is a reminder of it, the same way that foot washing, which we don't do as often as we should, but that is a reminder that we're to love and serve each other. These are visual reminders, the same way that cloth of one color and a shirt, or one type and a shirt is a reminder that the Jews were separated. My baptism is a reminder of that, and I have to come back to it. I am a new creation. Baptism is a reminder of commitment in the spiritual reality in the same way circumcision, etc., etc. I just said that. Uh, 
daily focus on Christ. So here's what the rubber in the road is. You have to train yourself to do it. You have to focus on Christ daily. Um, it's a vital part of putting on Christ and putting on that identity as a new creation. We have to study. We have to pray. We have to reflect on our actions and whether or not they glorify God. So, like, when I get to the midway point of the day, I might stop and say, the things I have done, have I used what God has given me well or have I wasted it? In that interaction with that man, did I bring him closer to Christ or further away? Did I serve my Lord in how I used my time this evening? Did I glorify God? Am I being a new creation? Or am I falling into old flesh, Eric? And do I need to crucify him? It is a discipline. It is a constant. It is a go back to it all the time. This is what we do during Lent. We come back to it over and over again and say, am I being this new creation? Am I doing what Christ called me to do? I... uh, Dwayne, one of the most impressive things I learned about Dwayne when I visited him, that was actually, I think, the last time I was at his house. It was in a while. He had a German copy of Luther's works. In his bathroom, he had a French language book that I tried to read and realized I couldn't. And I had nothing to read. Um, and, and a Russian language book, I think. And I asked him about it. He said, oh, well, I was doing my devotions in German this morning. Why do you do your devotions in German? That seems insane to me. They're hard enough to do without doing them in German. Because if you want to speak German, you have to speak German. If you want to speak French, you have to read and speak French. If you want to be a new creation in Christ, you have to do it every day. It's got to become the language of your life. It's got to become the face you wear, the clothes you put on, the the orientation you set, everything about who you are daily only it's eternity and it's the eternity of the people around us i'm going to close in prayer and i'll let you go it's i just cannot seem to keep it under anyway heavenly father i pray that um despite being long-winded today that your spirit spoke that the spirit blows wherever it wells and we know where you're going that whoever was hearing your spirit move that that my wandering and meandering and and whatever like that it didn't get in the way but that your spirit spoke and i pray that as we go through this time of lent as we prepare for easter as we as we cleanse ourselves and strip away our flesh and become new creations that you would make us new and i pray that during the season of lent as we prepare for easter that you would that you would make us new creations that you would bring us to a place of discipline where identity you know the truth of our baptism is brought to us over and over again. Old Eric is dead. New Eric is here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would like to be baptized on Easter, by the way, we could do that. And so if you're sitting there thinking, I've never been baptized, uh, we can do that. And so have a good day, guys.